All right, three, two, one. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On tonight's show, I have two very special guests, a father-daughter true crime writing team. Their names are Blaine Pardo and Victoria Hester. And on July 12, 2017, they published a book together. The title of that book is A Special Kind of Evil, The Colonial Park Killings. And that's the book we'll be talking about tonight. They've also written other books together. One is titled The Murder of Maggie Hume, Cold Case in Battle Creek. And another title is The Original Battle Creek Crime King, Adam Pump Arnold's Vile Reign. Uh, Blaine Pardo is also a very prolific author. He's written tons of other books with many different titles. And you can go get a list of those on Amazon. Uh, he's written uh, fiction in addition to nonfiction, of which these books are. But this uh, particular book, A Special Kind of Evil, The Colonial Park Killings, is about a series of murders, a uh, murder of eight people. So it might be a very um, difficult topic just to put out a warning for people listening not to have the audio. We're going to get into some pretty graphic details about uh, the deaths of some young people that happened um, on a crime spree from 1986 to 1988. But uh, they're going to talk more about that. Blaine and Victoria, are you there? Yes. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for agreeing to the interview. Before we get started, maybe you guys can in turn kind of talk about your writing background and how you became interested in the true crime subject and how you became interested in this particular subject. Whoever wants to start. Go ahead, V. Well, I have always had an interest in true crime ever since I was a kid. The very first um, like big chapter book that I ever read was Helter Skelter. And ever since then, after reading that book, I just become, became mildly obsessed with true crime. And just the whole investigative tactics are really interesting to me. And all the researching is really interesting. Um, I really, really have enjoyed Zodiac and continue to follow that case. I mean, throughout the decades, it's just a very interesting case. And I've been writing my own chapter book since I feel like since I could read. But really, the interest came from just watching my dad published books throughout the year and just being interested in writing in itself. Gotcha. And Blaine? Yeah. Well, I, I started writing in college and I've written a lot of science fiction. I've written military history, business management. Um, I got into true crime because I've been, always been a fan of it and I exposed Victoria to it at a young age, uh, which probably wasn't the best thing as a father, but um, it, it's worked out well for both of us. Um, I had written a couple of true crime books, and it really kind of came down to one case that I we were covering on the murder of Maggie Hume. I started taking a look at it, and I realized my daughter was the same age as the victim, and I thought it would be really good to have somebody who was in the same age be able to write that book because they could get into the head of someone who was that age. And uh, I I talked to Victoria about it, and we've been writing our true crime books together ever since. Gotcha. And so the the uh, murder of Maggie Hume and Adam Arnold's file reign those were preceded this particular book, correct? Yes. Okay. And so then, how you guys live kind of in that area? Is that correct? Where the Colonial Parkway murders were? We're about two we're hours about, from there. Yeah. We're, so sorry. But we uh, like. As a family growing up, that's where we would go on vacation was to Williamsburg area. So we personally traveled the parkway many times, especially in the summer months. 
Gotcha. So and it was weird because as a kid, I've never even heard of the murders. There's no plaque on the parkway. There's nothing on the parkway that would even indicate that there were ever murders there. Well, it's interesting you say that. I think you your intro, you guys talked about that, how there really isn't, um, you know, as much knowledge about it. I mean, it happened 30 years ago, but there is, a, you know, there's definitely some issue whether people think these are connected or not. But I, after reading your book, I believe they're all very, very similar. But um, maybe what we can do is talk about that area that you travel to and what, why it's... Uh, so unusual. I mean, the parkway itself really was a, a more recent creation, correct? The, the freeway? Yeah, it was created uh, in the 1930s. Um, it's the nation's longest, narrowest national park. I mean, in some places, it's only a, a few yards wide. Uh, and it was designed to connect Yorktown, Virginia, Colonial Williamsburg and the Jamestown uh, settlement, mostly for the tourists. And it was designed, kind of interestingly, to mimic a colonial road. So it's paved in a way that simulates driving on a gravel road, uh, you know, so that you can get that feel. There's no, uh, there's no markings for the lanes or anything along those lines. It snakes up along the York River, uh, goes past the CIA's training facility um, and as well as a naval weapons storage facility. And, and it's used extensively by people who are down in the, you know, tidewater area who are visiting Williamsburg, who are visiting Yorktown and Jamestown. And it's a really beautiful way to kind of connect those things. I think over the years, to a certain degree, the Park Service has done what they can to downplay this because they don't want people to think there's a serial killer in a national park, especially one that got away with it. Uh, but that's definitely the feeling we've had uh, from the moment we started doing research on it. Yeah, it makes sense. And the the road itself isn't that long. I think it was 24 miles. Is that right? I mean, I guess it's fairly distant, if my memory is correct. So it's somewhere along those lines, gotcha. yeah. And so... Maybe what we can do is get into the this you know this the the area itself the way you describe it in the book it's very well forested and um you know it's it, it has kind of spots in it that you can't really see long vista it has this kind of claustrophobic feel to it at least the way you portray it in the book maybe we can talk about the first the the first victims uh two women kathy thomas and Rebecca dowski. I'd be happy to talk about them. Okay. Um, yeah, this was 1986. It was October. Kathy Thomas was a graduate of the United States Naval Academy. She was uh, a grad the, in the second class that graduated females. So she really was kind of a, a true uh, groundbreaker in that area. And it's hard to remember that back in the 80s, you know, it was a rarity for women to be in our military academies. Uh, she was dating a young student at William and Mary named Rebecca Dowski. Um, Kathy had, had successfully mustered out of the Navy and was working as a stockbroker. And Rebecca Dowski was a student at William and Mary. Um, she was from Poughkeepsie, New York. Uh, the two of them had really just recently started dating. Uh, both were very vibrant women. Um, very headstrong, uh, strong people physically as well. 
Uh, they were seen on October 9th, 1986, on the campus of William and Mary. They were working on a computer project together. Uh, Rebecca was planning on going home for the Columbus Day break. Uh, the two went out for dinner and, and uh, were not seen from after that point except by their killers. Three days later, their car was found on the Colonial Parkway. Um, there are several pull-offs on the Colonial Parkway. Uh, where you can pull off and overlook the York River and or other various spots. Uh, they were at a, a pull-off area, and the car it apparently had gone over the edge and was nose down in the York River. Um, jogger happened to be going by, spotted the car. The park rangers thought it was somebody who had gotten drunk and had driven the car, you know, taken a hard right and driven off, you know, into the river. Uh, when they got there, they smashed the back window and they realized that there were two dead bodies inside the car, uh, one in the back hatchback and one in the back seat. Uh, at that point, they knew they were dealing with a crime. And, and you're talking about a crime that took place in that case um, on national parkland. So that's something that gets the FBI involved because it's on federal property. Uh, what they had discovered was a very gruesome scene when they pieced it all together. They don't know where the actual murder itself took place, but uh, it's clear that there was a struggle. Uh, Kathy Thomas had a cut uh, near her thumb where her thumb joined her skin from a knife. They had been strangled, both of them, with a piece of uh, nylon cord uh, used primarily uh, like fishing line was what it was called, or nautical line at the time. And then whoever their killer was had cut their throats. And in the case of Kathy Thomas, it was so violent they had nearly decapitated her. Their bodies uh, were then put in the vehicle, and whoever the killer was soaked them with diesel fuel and tried to set the vehicle on fire. And the problem with diesel fuel is it has a higher ignition point. You just can't throw a match at it and have it ignite. You, you have to have something hotter than that. Uh, when that failed, the killer apparently pushed the vehicle into the York River uh, to obscure the crime even more. And uh, in doing so, you know, the, the car didn't float away, but got stuck in the on the embankment. Right. And there's um, a picture in your book. You can see this kind of back end of her Honda Civic is kind of sticking up all, over the, the edge of the road. So, you know, yeah. that's how it was found. And the the... They were killed by, they were found as killed by strangulation. So whoever, you know, slit their throat did it. It was not necessary to end their lives. So it was like an overkill. Uh, that was one of the aspects yeah. of it. And, and, and something that's similar to all these deaths is there's a significant fact about all, a lot of them is that, if not all of them, is that they're found in the Colonial Parkway, but that doesn't necessarily mean that's where they were killed, right? Correct. Okay. We, we really don't know for sure where they were killed. Uh, there are s numerous pull-offs along there, and there had been rain that weekend, so if they had been killed somewhere, the blood could have easily been washed away. Uh, it may have been somewhere else on the parkway, or it could have been somewhere else entirely. We don't know. Yeah, and that's kind of the creepy thing, too, is like they're just last seen at a restaurant or something, and they're they're gone. So that was October 9th, 1986, found October 12th, 1986. And at that first point, that people didn't really know that there was going to be a kind of a pattern that was going to come up, correct? Yeah, they, initially they they explored this from 
the perspective the FBI did of a lover's triangle. They really uh, erroneously not understanding the gay community, etc. You got to remember it was 1980s. Um, they believed that one of their circle of friends must have gotten jealous and had, had committed this crime. Um, they really kind of split that group apart in, in terms of what they went through during the investigation. And as they worked through the investigation, they really came to the conclusion that that wasn't the actual issue. Um, none of these women had a motive for, for doing this. None of them really had the opportunity for doing it. Um, so, you know, at that point, it, it's one of those things where the FBI's primary focus, et cetera, was to really focus on that, and, and it really didn't go anywhere. They did develop at that time a profile that it could be what they call a waterman. Uh, watermen are the local fishermen uh, in the Chesapeake Bay area. It, now, a, motorman, a waterman might very well have diesel fuel in his vehicle, uh, could have nautical line. Right. would have a sharp enough knife potentially to, to nearly decapitate someone. Uh, there were a lot of creepy characters on the parkway at night. You know, as a tourist, we all tend to drive it during the daytime, and it, it's quite beautiful. It's like driving through a tunnel of trees. Um, you can't see anything other than, than wilderness, and it's beautiful and the water. Uh, but at night, it was the kind of place that attracted a lot of seedy characters and uh so, you know, it's really one of those things that they wondered if this was a waterman who was somehow stalking people on the parkway. And there were a lot of reports of peeping toms. And the way it was is also kind of like a lover's lane. Like people would pull off to, you know, uh, couples would stop often there late at night. Or some people would, although some of these victims clearly did not want to have anything to do with the Colonial Parkway at night, which we'll find out, which indicates that they were is another kind of factual indicator that they were not murdered there. Um, so the next uh, couple that is found remains are, are David Nobling and Robin Edwards. That was uh, September 20th, 1987, about a year uh, later after Kathleen Thomas and Rebecca Dowski. Do you want to handle that, Victoria? So David and Robin actually met for the first time earlier the evening before they disappeared. Robin was actually going on a date with David's younger cousin, and he was kind of chaperoning the date. Um, they had never met before. She was 14, and he was much older, so they wouldn't have really even known each other prior to that day. Um, but later in the night, we do know that Robin snuck out of her bedroom window and at some point met up with him. He probably picked her up, is the assumption. And they went, the, his truck was later found at a wildlife refuge. Um, the next morning kind of parked differently than he would park it with the door open and the radio blaring and the car was unlocked, obviously. And he typically backed into every parking spot. His truck was like his prized possession and he would never have left it unlocked with the windows down and the radio on while it was pouring down rain. So the vehicle was found and it was actually both families didn't know that their kids were actually together they both filed separate missing persons reports, and the search went on for more than a day and a half until their bodies were found washed up on the beach area of the wildlife refuge. Um, Robin was shot execution style, and David was found shot in the back of his head and the back of his shoulder, almost like he was either reaching or trying to get away at some point is where that injury 
appeared that way. And uh, but he they weren't found close to where his car was, right? They were found at the same wildlife refuge, but it wasn't near the parking lot area. Right. So they were found in kind of a ravine, like they were in the water in um, during the kind of the tidal action of the bay, correct? Correct. And it had been torrentially downpouring the past few days prior. So the, the, the actually the water was really rough and that's why they were found washed up where they were. And wasn't so there was some element of his truck there was staging, right? Yeah, so it was assumed at the time that his, he parked his truck. The police actually believed that he left it that way. And it was actually when we interviewed his younger brother who helped him wire that vehicle that we found out that he wired the truck specifically so that the key didn't have to be on accessories in order to listen to the radio because they had. They were constantly working on his truck. So this way they could listen to the radio without having, you know, to burn up the and then the accessories. So the fact that the key was in the ignition to accessories proved that it was somebody else that did it because David wired it himself and would know he didn't have to do that to have the radio on. And with the radio blaring and the windows down and the keys in the initial ignition, it was definitely staged for someone, hopefully, the killer probably thought somebody's got to see this truck and hopefully take it and ruin the crime scene even further. Right, but so, obviously that didn't happen. So somebody is really kind of thinking about these crimes that have that other element of somebody who is aware of evidence. They're not rash. Uh, they're much more meticulous than some kind of straight crime of passion that happens and things. And you also see the staging or the the difference in the car in the Thomas and Dowski deaths because... That seat was also pushed back all the way. They found that as well, which means that somebody got in the seat, pushed the seat back. And uh, so the, the cars were both being adjusted, both in the Nobling Edwards. And Edwards was, she was very young too. So she, and I think that David Nobling was seen very late at night. Like he went to, he said he was going to go out at midnight. So there was a very, you know, late night element to him going to get Edwards. Like they just disappeared. Oh, yeah, it was definitely, like I said, the families didn't even know that they knew each other or that they were even connected. So they were treated as two separate missing persons until it was figured out. Yeah. So so that, I mean, when when did the police start to kind of figure out? It wasn't probably until the next one that they started to figure out they had a pattern or did they notice something with this? They really didn't notice it with this crime. It wasn't until the next crime, which again kind of took things back to the parkway, right. where you again get another pair, a couple that's involved, and that really kind of cemented it for the authorities that they had somebody going around killing pairs of people. And there's a lot of similarities that kind of tie these things together, as you see over time. Right. And so then they also kind of there was some kind of evidentiary problems because they had the truck towed back to um, for his dad. Right. Didn't they have Nobling's dad take the truck? So they, they didn't really kind of secure these crime scenes very well, is my understanding. No, no, no that was it was done very poorly. Um the authorities, you know, at the time when they towed his vehicle, they didn't know they were dealing with murder. They thought it was just a missing person, and and unfortunately, that it was a mistake on their part. Uh, they mishandled the fingerprints, uh, 
you know, they actually left the fingerprint cards all over the yard at the Nobbling House. Um, it just, it, you know, it, it was a little bit of a comedy of errors, uh, but it was deadly serious for the families. You know, right. it, this was just mishandled. And then, so then the next one is about uh, seven months later, eight months later. It's the disappearance of Richard Call and Cassandra Haley. Do one of you guys want to uh, talk about those, that disappearance? So they were actually on like a first date, but it was a very casual first date the night before you know, they disappeared. They actually went, they knew each other from Christopher Newport University, which at that time was a college, not a university. It was much smaller in that time period. But they had a class together. They had both recently got out of long, longer relationships. And it was kind of like, oh, we'll go to this party together, but not, it's not, you know, a date type deal. Um, they were, they went to the party together. He picked her up from her house. She had a pretty strict curfew and um, she was known to always stay with that curfew. She was known to kind of follow the rules of the house and respect her parents. So they had gone to the party at an apartment complex on campus. Uh, they were seen by multiple witnesses. They weren't even really standing near each other at the party. At one point, one of the witnesses said that Keith was actually talking about and near tears talking about his ex-girlfriend at the party. So there was little interest in each other. They just more so went to the party together. Witnesses saw them leave about 20 to 30 minutes before her curfew, which would have put her at home at the time of her actual curfew. They both left the party together, and they were last seen leaving the party in his vehicle. That vehicle was found the next morning on the Colonial Parkway, a couple miles away from where the first murder occurred, pulled off on the side of the road with the same sort of car staging that we've seen previously, keys in the ignition, there, the door open, the light, the interior light on, the radio on. The same sort of staging things that we've been seeing is now becoming a pattern at this point. And their bodies were nowhere to be found. And actually, to this day, their bodies have not been found. So we truly don't know where they are, what happened to them, what occurred. But we do know that their bodies are nowhere on the Colonial Parkway or the surrounding water of the area. Um, that area was very combed extensively. Um, at one point, they had military members walking arm arm in arm across the whole parkway, looking for any sort of clues about them. But the the like you said about the car, he had like a red car that I think his dad saw, and he just walked you know walked away. So it was in a very obvious place. But their clothing was also there as well. So uh, it's an even creepier crime scene. Like so, somebody somehow. In a, within the very short amount of time, you know, probably five hours or ten hours, unclothed them and had their clothes in the car, and they were never found. It's just really... And somebody saw, like, a creepy fan, creepy van driving up and down the Colonial Parkway as well. So there's a lot of suspicious stuff associated with them as well. Yeah, you have something very similar, too, with the previous murder, their shoes are taken, and and that's an evidence of, you know, it happened with uh, David and Robin, and it also happened with Keith and Cassandra. Their shoes are taken, their clothing is taken. This is a killer that's exerting control over his, his subjects. Uh, you know, you've got a killer that's spending an inordinate period of time with his victims in all of these cases. He's he's intercepting them somewhere. He is killing them somewhere and in the case of keith and cassandra disposing of their bodies 
He's then taking the vehicle where it'll be found, which was a half mile from where Kathy Thomas and Rebecca Dowski's car was. He left it on the parkway and staged it so that the police could pick it up. So, you know, you see these kind of, this pattern kind of coming up that this killer spent considerable time with his victims. Yeah, it's, it's remarkable. And uh, it was this one that the immediate link, immediate link to the earlier crimes happened. And, uh, yeah, it's uh, – and I think you said that Ron Montgomery of the county sheriff said they were never on the parkway. So they think that the bodies were done somewhere else, right? So. Yeah, it, they did an extensive search in the York River, and they actually found another dead body that had, of a sailor who had fallen or jumped off of a ship two weeks earlier – and killed himself. They found that body while they were searching for Keith and Cassandra. So, I mean, the search was pretty extensive. I I think the car was simply left on the parkway. Um, I don't think they were ever there because the killer would have had to have driven them a considerable distance to get them to that place. I think uh, whatever happened happened after they left the party and before they would have reached Cassandra's home. Right. So, so that's this the third one. And then the fourth uh, couple is Anna Maria Phelps and Daniel Lauer. That was September 4th, 1989, about a year and a half later. Kind of the same thing again. Can one of you guys talk about that? I'd be happy to. We're coming up on the 30th anniversary of it this Labor Day. Um, you know, Daniel Lauer was planning on moving in with his with his sister in Virginia Beach. Um you know, he had been working for his father. His father owed him some money, et cetera, but he was going to move in with with his brother, Clinton. Anna Maria Phelps was Daniel's brother's girlfriend. Um, and they were all from an area south of Richmond. Um, they invited Daniel out for Labor Day weekend. Um, they were literally scraping pennies, uh, you know, Clinton had lost his job working at Wendy's. Uh, they really kind of reached a point where they kind of said, well, it'd be great if you could move in with us so we could get the electricity turned back on. Um, yeah, so the decision was made that Daniel would move in. And they had some friends with them. The Godsey family had joined them that weekend from home. So the plan was to drive the Godseys back home. And Anna Maria went along with Daniel um, just so that he could drop her off. She could drop in on her family for a few minutes. Daniel could get his goods and the money his dad owed him, and they could head back to Virginia Beach. Um, he dropped off Anna Maria. He dropped off the Godsies. Uh, he picked up his, his clothing, etc., picked her up, and they set off again on I-64, eastbound, heading back towards the Virginia Beach area. Uh, the next day, their car was found in the westbound area on the um, entrance ramp to or to merge back onto traffic. Uh, there was a roach clip pinned to a half-lowered window, so there's something there to attract attention. The keys were, were in plain sight. Um, the only thing missing was some of the money from that he had had on him. But for the most part, police didn't know what had happened. Uh, they did a search of the area, looking for the two of them. They had been seen, last seen across the highway on the at the eastbound area on in the rest area there. But other than that, no one knew where they were. Police did a search. 
didn't find their remains. Uh, it wasn't until um, October when a group of turkey hunters about a mile, mile and a half away in the woods found their bodies. There was evidence that Anna Maria had a cut on one of her, the bones of her finger, so it was a defensive knife wound. Um, the two of them had been covered up in some way with a blanket uh, that came from his vehicle. But uh, other than that, there isn't a lot to, to indicate what happened. The police have come up with a rather complicated scenario, the Virginia State Police on this, but in terms of how they ended up where they did, uh, but it was clear whoever did this had a very strong knowledge of that area, had stalked that area out. They were on a logging road, and Victoria and I have trespassed onto it and walked it. It's a creepy road, and if you didn't know that area, you would never drive back there, especially at night, because you could easily get in a situation where you couldn't get out. Um, so he had clearly checked that area, knew it well, planned this well, and then somehow had intercepted them at the rest area, got them back there, killed them, went back and covered the bodies up, then moved the car to the other side of the highway, then probably crossed back over the highway and picked up his vehicle and took off. Um, so there's a lot of time, again, spent with the victims and a lot of time crossing a highway on a you know holiday weekend where everybody's heading home. Yeah, so, I mean, there are some people out there that think that these might be random murder, random murders. They don't seem to see the similarities. What are their arguments for them being uh, unrelated? Well, they point to the fact that, you know, in the, the first and fourth cases, we know a knife was used. We have no idea how Keith and Cassandra were killed, but we also know that a gun was used, you know, for the other victims, uh, you know, Robin and, um, you know, it just, it, to them, uh, the people tend to go, well, the weapons being used for David and Robin were a gun. You know, the others were knives and, it, you know, that, that in their mind kind of disqualifies them. But, you know, the last three of these, you have the, the killer staging the vehicle to be stolen, leaving the keys out, doing something to attract somebody to the vehicle. Uh, to me, it, it just really screams for it. I, you know, the problem is you've got multiple jurisdictions that work this case. You've got the Virginia State Police, two different divisions, uh, are handling two of these pairs of murders. And the FBI is handling the ones on the parkway. And while profilers on both sides all agree they're connected, the individuals doing the actual pursuit of the killers – tend to say, well, they're all connected except for the one we're working. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. Uh, you know, and it, it's it, it's not an organized message both to the, the victims' families and to the public as well. And I think that's led to some of the, the confusion with this case over the years. I, I don't know how you feel about Victoria, but... Oh, sorry. Please continue, Victoria. I'm sorry. What was the question? Well, just about what uh, what uh, what ties these together, what doesn't tie these together, because there is it seems like there was some people who don't think that these are all related, the same killer or killers, really. Yeah, in general, that they're in couples. It's pretty rare of crimes to be done in couples. Can you speak up just a little more, please? It's 
rare that crimes are done in couples, being that there's two victims at the same time. Um, that requires a lot of skill for the killer and confidence of the killer to be able to know, I'm going to kill two people and not one of them's going to get away or cause a scene. Um, so in general, that's pretty rare on its own and for it to be in such a small area. All these crimes are about 40 minutes of each other, which seems like a bigger area than what it is, but it is the Tidewater area. And that may have been the killer's way of let me kind of stay in the same area but be in different jurisdictions in order to further muddy the investigation. That's my theory on why they're kind of spread out but not not really geographically. Well, they're... Um, they're, they're, they're I'm sorry, continue. And the fact that the cars are staged, um, you can tell with the first murder that it, so many things were going on. There was stabbing. There was fire involved. There was so much going on. I mean, the killer tried to push the car into the bank. Just the fact that all that stuff was going on, it just looked like someone's first time killing. There was so much, like he came prepared, but he also used everything he had at the same time. So he got better each time, and we can see that with the last one never, you know, the second to last one never finding the bodies, and then the very last one them being found so much later in such a desolate area. That makes sense. And then, um, so that's the, really the four, and you guys uh, kind of finish up the book. You have some other questions you ask, things like that. What is the, what's the significance of Orange Virginia for both of you? Well, we actually met with the profiler for the Virginia State Police there. When we first started the book, it was our first interview, and, and he really laid out for us how these cases are connected. Um, and, and for us, that was, you know, we kind of came into it open-ended. You, you can't come in with a lot of predetermined prejudices about where the investigation's going to go. You really, when you're writing something like this, you want to come in and have your mind wide open and just see where the evidence takes you. And to talk to somebody that had uh, had gone through this and, and had really picked this apart for years and could lay it out for us and, and tell us how these cases were connected, I, I think that was one of the big things for me that was kind of a turning point. We, we walked away from that on the drive home going, oh, my God, this really is a surreal killing case. Right. I mean, that's what it feels to me. I was just kind of asking that uh, that question more just to kind of elicit some of the oppositional responses. But to me, it's a serial killing. I bet those other people, this person is stalked, too, uh, that got away, you know, or that something didn't happen. I wouldn't. And I think you said or the guy said um, his theory was that it was two people, which I think seems credible as well. It may not just be one individual, um, but uh, we're at about 36 minutes. I mean, I, I commend you guys for writing a very detailed, fact-intensive book, and also your focus on the individuals and the families, how much uh, time that you put into to talk about these people's lives and also the effect upon these families. Like, uh, I've unfortunately had similar true crime inquiries and just the families are destroyed they just are wrecked by these horrible events so i really uh, appreciate you guys taking the time to really talk about that in the book but is there anything else that you guys think uh, i might have missed or would like to add before we wrap it up i can't really oh. think of anything okay the, the biggest thing is this is an unsolved case 
So if you've got a tip, a lead, a suggestion, you've heard a rumor, you know, we're deal- we're coming up on the 30th anniversary of the last set of killings. Contact the Virginia State Police. Contact the FBI. We we get contacts every few weeks or so, and we pat when you contact us, we pass the information directly on to the authorities. And we had one that come came in last week. Um, so you know this, it's important to to talk about these cases because somebody out there knows something, and they may not have thought of it as significant at the time. But in the context of, of these cases, it could be the crucial piece of evidence that could help this get solved. And, uh, involved, and as far as this cases or these cases are concerned, there have been potential suspects that didn't um, end up in any type of uh, prosecution, though. Do you? What are your thoughts on some of those potential suspects? Victoria, you want to tackle that at all? It's hard to, with the potential suspects, it's been so many years. I mean, we're coming up on the 30th anniversary of the last crime. It's going to take hard evidence or a confession, regardless of who the suspects are. At this point, whatever evidence is left is been 30 years old. So it's going to have to be DNA or it's going to have to be, look, I did these murders. So to me, the suspects that we've gone over in the book, um, unless one of those things happens, I'm hopeful. I really, especially with all the things going on with Ancestry DNA, um, especially recently, there is hope. And I really hope that, you know, something breaks for these families, just for justice after all these years would still be worth it. I mean, some of these, uh, I think there was like some evidence was destroyed. Like weren't a couple of the rape kits destroyed? But they could still go back and test if they've kept all the clothing and things like that. There may be something there. Do you know if that's ever been attempted or has been attempted recently? I don't know if it's been attempted recently. I I would say the best place for DNA evidence will be Nobbling Edwards um, because some DNA was recovered from that. I think there was some DNA that would definitely be recoverable, and I use that word carefully, um, with the first murders, Thomas Dowski, because the FBI was involved, they kept the entire interior of the vehicle. Um, they cut it out and preserved it. Um, and, and I think you're going to have a better luck with the case, the two cases that the FBI handled at getting trace DNA evidence using a system like MVAC or something along those lines. Um, than any of the other cases because the FBI handles evidence very differently than Virginia State Police. I'm not saying Virginia State Police did it wrong, but you're talking about 1980s investigative techniques and we're looking back at them from 2019 and it doesn't doesn't jive, you know? And we look at it now and say, oh my God, they shouldn't have been handling these things the way they did and things along those lines. And it's always easy to look back that way and say they did it wrong, but they did it right for the time period. But I think the FBI handles evidence in general much better. Gotcha. And uh, where can people contact you? You guys are both on uh, social media, correct? Oh, absolutely. You can follow. I, I've, I have a blog that I do. Um, I'm on Twitter, Bparto870. You know, if you Google me, you can find me, and I think you can find Victoria as well. Yeah, it's P A R. Yeah, P A R D O E, and Victoria's last name is Hester H E S T E R. 
Um, the book, again, is A Special Kind of Evil, The Colonial Park Killings. Excellent book. Very well written. Really a, a great read. I appreciate you guys taking the time to talk about your book. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. All right. We're done. Thank you, guys. Have a great day. Yeah. Have a great weekend. Let us, know, let us know when you post it so we can.